Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. The Science of Sports podcast with Professor Ross Tucker and sports journalist Mike Finch. Last week we missed a week of our Science of Sport podcast because uh, we were a little bit busy and deadlines and all sorts of things. And uh, we are going to warn you that in the next couple of weeks we're going to miss another week because Ross is travelling overseas for a bit of time. So my apologies to our regular listeners. We got, we're having a couple of weeks where we're not able to get a podcast out for logistical reasons. But uh, I promise that we will probably catch up sometime uh, when Ross gets back with making sure they're weekly as we are promising to do throughout this year. Anyway, so let's get on to the subject of our podcast today. And uh, before we're going to do that, we're going to get some caught my eyes with Ross in just a few moments. But we're going to be talking today a little bit about the barefoot running scenario. And we've talked a little bit about this in the past. Um, there's been a re not a re-release, a release of uh, Christopher McDougall's new book, Born to Run, which uh, was the first book that got the barefoot running craze underway. And we're going to talk a little bit about um, some of the latest research and some of the latest papers that have come out about barefoot running. So if that's your interest, uh, stay tuned. Uh, we're going to be getting into that in just a few moments. But uh, first of up, Ross, we have some caught my eyes from you today. Quite a few of them, actually, and some interesting ones on the transgender front. Yeah, these are things that caught my eye, unfortunately. It's more like poke me in the eye these days, this transgender issue. Can't avoid it anymore. Yes. Um, I'm not going to say anything because there's a funny joke there somewhere. Started started on this path, and now it's, mm. it's coming up so often. It's amazing, actually, because three or four years ago when it began, it was like, this is not a common problem. So it's and that and it's still not a common problem, but it's becoming but it's, a big it's problem. It's now I reckon now there are more sports that have had to confront it than not, mm. which I think is interesting. And yeah, it's not common by by volume within each sport, but it's mm. common. I think it's clearly becoming more and more of an issue, which is predictable. I mean, I've had a couple of discussions with friends where they say, "Well, in this transgender debate." If it's left open, then everybody's going to suddenly become a transgender athlete. And yeah, I don't. People, that's not going to happen. I mean, no, I don't think so. That's, like, I think that's a proper conspiracy theory, isn't it? And I have seen a lot of people saying it's just cheating. They simplify no, it to no, the extent no. that they're saying this is all it is is men wanting to win in sports, yes. and they couldn't in men's sports, so they're going to enter women's competitions. That's quite an I'm extreme sure that, way to win a women's event. Yeah, and I'm sure there are some <laughs> people who might consider that, but I don't think that's the primary reason that drives it in the first instance. I think that there is a genuine gender identity yeah, issue, and then sure. the person wants to compete, but then it introduces, and we've spoken about it, introduces a collision of rights because it deprives women of the right to fair and safe sport. And that's, for me now, very clear, and it's some sports have also recognized that some not and one that one that has but can't quite you know make the final commitment to a policy is uk athletics you may know that it's now rumored that you world athletics is probably going to go with some kind of fudge mm. i think world athletics knows that there's no fair competition with males in women's sport even with testosterone reduction mm. But they're under such pressure, and they came, of course, through the Casta Semenya trial, which not trans DSD, but still they were in court for this concept, mm. protection of women's sport. 
think they spend a lot of money on that and they're now quite shy about having to go back to it. So I think they're fearful of litigation and the cost and they're going to try and fudge it. So UK Athletics... But how can, I mean, just, just to take a step back and maybe just to remind listeners about some of the discussions we've had around there, very short, very, in a very short way of saying it, to say that we know that transgender athletes, even though they might have all these hormone suppressant mm. um, drugs that they take, the long-term effects of them being previously male are give them an advantage no matter how much they are reduced in terms of testosterone and hormones yeah so you can call it some people have called it legacy effects of testosterone i'd say persistent effects that the effect of testosterone outlasts the testosterone and the science is quite clear on that yeah and there's so so there's good solid science and a lot of it suggesting the retention of significant male physiology Mm. and if the male physiology is retained the performance advantage is retained you can't have one without the other for sure there's also no science at all that suggests that the advantage can be removed Mm. and now if you start from the position which i think is reasonable that there needs to be a separate category for women in sport then the onus really should be to show that you don't have any advantage left Mm. and it's been interesting like i alluded to the four years ago one thing back then was oh it's not common why are you making a big fuss over this well okay let's wait and see and sure enough it's becoming increasingly common and the second thing that was always said at that point is well there's no unfair advantage now even even people who argued that then have come around to say okay there is advantage mm. but it's not so large that it can't <coughs> allow meaningful sport to occur so now now they've tried to reframe advantage to say that it's small enough and therefore sport can be meaningful even with male advantage in women's sports which is a proper fudge so this is the tap dance that's happening now and of course, that's not true. That's like saying that a heavyweight doesn't have an advantage over lightweight just because he happens to be weak and it's a small yeah. advantage. I mean, it's either an advantage or it's not. Yeah, sure. And so, that's, so UK Athletics, where, where are they so, now then? So when World Athletics <laughs> policy was, it wasn't so much announced, but, but put out there as though this is what they were considering, a number of athletes from the UK said, no, not on, no thank you, as it were, to borrow from the weightlifter in Tokyo. And there were a few, and they've come out quite vocally on Twitter. A couple of Americans since then have joined them. And I think the pressure that they brought has then compelled UK (laughs) Athletics to come out with a statement. And this was a few weeks ago, so it's not recent. But basically, UK Athletics announced that it recognized that a a woman's sport was necessary and that it should be closed to female only at birth. Only female at birth, as it were. And they're basically saying that their desired position, preferred policy, would be to have a woman's category for biological females and an open category for everyone else, which is kind of exactly what should be done by all sports. Mm. But, and here's the, here's the catch, is they, they also s- pulled out of being able to make that a definitive policy because, in their opinion, they don't believe that there is a legal grounds to do it. And so... They took legal advice regarding the Gender Recognition Act of 2004, and this is a quote from the chairman who says, it states that people with gender recognition certificates have to be treated as female for all purposes, and there's not an exemption for that for sporting purposes, right? So so he's basically saying that there's this act from 2004, which says that we can't exclude trans women from women's sport because they have the certificate, therefore Mm. they must be considered female for all purposes. Now, the thing is that in 2010, and we know this because World Rugby used this and a number of sports have referred to this, and they had to have known it, is that there's a 2010 Gender Recognition Act which specifically states that you can make an exemption. And in the aftermath of the UK athletic statement, 
a group called the Equality and Human Rights Commission came out with a statement which begins, we are concerned that UK Athletics' interpretation of the sporting exemption is inaccurate. Yes. And they go on to refer to Section 195.1 of that document, that gender, the Equality Act 2010, and it says here, gender-affected activity is a sport, game, or other activity in which the physical strength, stamina, or physique of average persons of one sex would put them at a disadvantage compared to the average persons of another sex as competitors of an, in events evolving activity. Now, that is classic description of men's and women's sports. Yes. Male sex, female sp- sex. The average <laughs> strength, stamina, physique of one sex, females, puts them at a disadvantage compared to the average. And therefore, and they quote this, 195.2, permits organizations to discriminate on grounds of gender reassignment where this is necessary to in- ensure fair competition and the safety of competitors now that's so somebody ex- some lawyer on UK athletics has not done his job very well really well that's what it's like they haven't seen the update or or has done his job exceptionally well and try to protect them against future litigation by passing the responsibility to the people who craft these laws to say you must make this even more clear than it is now now in my opinion that's pretty clear well that's pretty clear it's yeah. very clear yeah. but they're gonna see they're worried everyone's scared about lawsuits mm-hmm. because they've been bullied and harassed for a decade or more into thinking that there's only one way to act here and that's to permit anything and it actually took and i remember when we did this with world rugby it took quite a concerted effort among member unions to make them see that there is actually another way to look at this issue mm-hmm. because no one had ever thought about it they'd only ever heard from one voice this is a concept we discussed a couple of weeks back, is, that, is, is if you only ever face one direction and you hear the voice from that side, then you don't realize that behind you there's mm-hmm. maybe a different perspective. Yeah. And yeah. that's what's happened here, I think. And So now what's happened is I think everyone's holding this thing up and they hear it ticking and they say, this is a bomb. I don't want to mm-hmm. hold it. So UK Athletics is saying, you have it. What I don't understand is that why is everybody scared of litigation when the evidence, the science, the, the, the previous cases, <laughs> the law all seems to safeguard that. I don't understand why there'd be this fear. Because I, I think the dice have, have been loaded by years and years of like mm. one, one group having all the say in this debate. Mm. And so it's created this perception that we must just acknowledge mm. and accept people as they say. And again, there's no issue with that, but there are certain circumstances where it clearly becomes a problem mm. because there are things where sex matters. Mm. Sport is the most obvious of them. Mm. And I do think many people who fought so hard in this almost blind trans woman or woman, hashtag trans woman or woman campaign, they must be looking and going like, maybe sport was not the right place to do this because it's so obvious that it doesn't work. So obvious where there's a male-female difference. Feels like a fear of, of woke, doesn't it? Well, that's, that's what it is. I mean, yeah. so like there's a short un-PC answer to your question and that's just that people have lost like, touch, I think, with reality. Mm. I mean, but, but nevertheless, UK Sports have now said that, and then the Equality and Human Rights Commission came out with this public statement on the same day. Mm. It was UK real, Athletics, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, saying, now, hang on, you guys have read this wrongly. And Sean Engel covered it, and, and actually the Equality Commission says here that uh, we spoke to them. They said, we reached out to UK Athletics and offered to discuss the legal advice underpinning their statement. Yeah. That's why when you say their lawyers dropped the ball, I'm saying they knew and they still made a decision that they didn't want to put a policy in place because they don't want to be front of the line when lawsuits start coming up. And so they're passing, I think they're just passing the buck of accountability because other sports have done it, right? Yeah. Triathlon UK, English rugby, world rugby recognized mm. it. There are but sports they're all that guidelines though, aren't they? They aren't rules. 
Even you know, in world rugby, there's a guidelines, aren't they? I yeah, mean, and that it, was that was in part because we can't impose laws in no. various countries. Mm. So we have a guideline. Now, the thing is, uh, this is the UK Act, right? The, the Gender Recognition and now the Equality Act we're talking about. In Canada, it's different. Mm. Here in South Africa, it's different too. In South Africa, <laughs> the Constitution is that you must respect people's sex and gender. Mm. Well, okay, but now what happens when those two things are in opposition with one yeah. another? Which yeah. one do you pick? Yeah. And so it's like they've made it really messy. By trying to be all-inclusive, mm. they end up being exclusive. And that's yeah. the whole point here is that few people have considered that the inclusion means exclusion. That's how sport works. That's right. Yeah. Three spots on a podium, mm. eight lanes in an Olympic final, mm. 3,000 athletes at the Olympics, whatever the number is. You know? mm. And so everyone who's there means one who's not. Yeah. And they haven't figured out that for the rights that they're arguing, they're denying rights to another group. And that's the... So, yeah, I don't know where this one ends because world athletics, I think, has come under some pressure for considering a fudge that will allow males into women's sport. Mm. And I guess in the next few months, that's probably the next time we'll revisit this, is they'll have to announce something. Yeah, I, I just, I'm blown away by the fact that logic is not <laughs> winning here. I mean, it's just, I don't know. I mean, it's, what we'll do in the show notes, obviously, is to put in Sean Ingle from The Guardian's um, article, because mm. I think mm. it's very interesting to read that. And Sean always does a great job um, in explaining these kind of quite, difficult issues um, and this one is one of yeah. those you know so yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah read it with read it with an open mind if you're cynical about this kind of stuff because it is yeah and i it's mean quite now, clear. it's and the other thing that's really clear now is that whatever sports decide now is very clearly choice yeah there was a time a few years back again where there was still like they had successfully muddied the waters enough that d people didn't know whether you could achieve fairness mm. with trans women inclusion and safety with inclusion. Was, there was this juggling and the IOC are still holding on to that fallacy that you can have all three. Don't worry, here's mm. King Solomon coming along to make everyone happy. <laughs> But I think what's become increasingly clear is that you can't cut the baby in half, as it were, to yeah. continue that analogy. And you can't have inclusion and fairness and safety mm. because inclusion means exclusion because it's inclusion of one at the expense of another. And in this right. case, it's a male into woman sport. Yeah. Right? It means safety concerns exist and it means unfairness. It yeah. undermines the integrity of women's sport very mm. clearly. And now I think people all understand that. Mm. And so there are still some you'll find on social media saying, oh, there's no advantage. Well, okay, you're five years behind. Mm. Most people recognize there is an advantage. And so when they are choosing to allow inclusion, they are making a choice, which at least we now understand. Yeah, We know it's a choice. And the latest of those, incidentally, was Ladies Gaelic Football in Ireland made announced its policy last week where they're allowing trans women with one year of suppression of testosterone and a certificate from a physician to play in women's Gaelic football. Now that caused, as you can imagine, the usual criticisms of them, but they're, not, they're, they're either oblivious or don't care because they've chosen. It's choice. Well, they haven't followed the science. Well, exactly. They've, yeah. they've chosen to ignore what they must know exists. Mm. I, I sort of somewhat cheekily said, I'm in Dublin on the 8th of March. One night only, let me know and I'll explain some things to you. you know? <laughs> They're never going to do it and it's cheeky deliberately. Mm. But they, because they know. they know. There's no doubt. That, I mean, when you read their policy incident, it so looks, it looks like it was they, written by a team of seven lawyers. If, if they know, again, if they know, why are they... This is another one of those fudges in, in, in many ways mm. what that's happening in athletics. Yeah, because what they're saying is that they've got a committee. It's called the TRC, 
<laughs> so this is kind of decision by committee rather than decision by logic or science. Yeah, so they've got a committee mm. that will now, you, you have to fill in application form A if you're over 18. And that's sta- that has a written um, statement from you that you identify and have lived as a woman and that you've suppressed your testosterone. So no no control over that. I mean, you can just say that you have. Your physician has to sign it and sign off that you have had yeah, low testosterone for 10 years. Abuse, yeah. Yeah. So good luck with that. And then apparently <sighs> they've got a, a provision where they can deny a person the right to participate if they consider there to be insufficient risk, mm. which is their fudge. That's I was going to say, I'd like to see when they do actually do that and what they base that on. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So like I know that, and that's similar incidentally to what Australian rugby did. And I was at a conference and, and someone said to me, oh, we recently denied a trans woman to who wanted to play women's rugby we said no because they were like 120 kilograms mm. or something and it was obvious well mm. okay that's that size isn't really the only thing here mm. but that's what it'll come down to oh you're too big to play against mm. women but actually <laughs> that's this, a lawsuit in itself isn't ex- it? exactly so it's more discriminatory yeah. it's more arbitrary than than having a policy for all males it's impossible to assess the risk and the safety and the fairness issues accurately so they've actually invited, but you know what? I can hundred percent guarantee what's happening. They've said, even even if grudgingly they recognise you can't have fairness and safety. They've said, you know, there's a the risk of a lawsuit is larger than the risk of a yeah of a of an issue. So we're actually going to allow it and just hope. I know that because one of the member unions in rugby did the same thing. They said, look, we agree with you guys, but uh, we, we're not going to take the decision that you did around mm. trans women in women's sport because we'll take our chances that the lawsuit is worse than the exclusion uh, sorry the exclusion is is worse than the, the lawsuit law- yeah. yeah the problem i think what they don't realize is that they're liable to a lawsuit from the other side <laughs> yes because that, that, that's and again i was just thinking the same thing and again it's surely be- they're more likely to get a a lawsuit again going against them on the other side because they're not taking enough precautions as Garan- a federation guarantee you they have not thought about that or if they have they haven't waited enough because they aren't listening to women yeah. That's the problem. Like yes. they have silenced. They've they've put mute on women's well, voices. Well, they think it's they think it's protecting women's sport. They think it's a mm. women's sport issue, but in fact, it's not. It is a women's sport issue, but negatively. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Yes. And they and they've only heard from one side, and they've they've yeah. muted the other side, yes. and that's why they don't recognise the research and the and the threat of litigation. I, I, I think, think I, I think a lot of sports have massively underestimated the 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 brewing anger and frustration and hostility that they are fermenting by having these policies and not asking women for their opinions enough. Well, one thing I will say, there's a bit of a deafening silence, and in, in from what I've seen, and maybe I'm wrong about this, coming from women's sport. Do you feel that? I mean, I, well, I often s- feel that women's sport are not saying enough about this they're, issue. They're so scared. They're so scared. But like it is the like threat in to the, them. Everybody else is talking about it. You and, and I are talking about it. Right. You talk about it. Yeah, and I'll try my best from within within the sport to do it. And I know, like yeah. in, in in world rugby, we had a couple of the women players and former players who were very vocal in support of the guideline. But they yeah. took a massive risk to do that. They got a lot of hate for it. Mm. And in fact, referring to this UK athletics, a couple of their athletes, there was a shot putter who came out and was very outspoken, appeared on a number of morning chat shows and news shows in mm. the aftermath of the world athletics announcement. And sure, rallied a lot of support. And I dare say UK athletics statement mm. and their recognition of the unfairness issue owes itself to her voice along with that of other athletes. Mm. But some of the athletes who voiced their opinion on Twitter have had um, letters sent to the club and to their sponsors asking that their sponsorships be revoked and that they be disciplined by their clubs. Because the moment you say anything about this, the mob 
and it's a, it's the small mob. I it's think a small they mob, yeah. they pile in and they threaten you financially, mm. uh, morally. Because you've you've had it's, some quite aggressive interactions on social media. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but the thing is, I've got Not nothing. on social media, something quite direct. Yeah, it's nothing. I've got nothing to lose, really, because I don't have a sponsorship to lose. Yeah. Well, I, I, I did, and it, it's, mm. it's got sort, of, sort of happened a little bit because of this. <laughs> but <laughs> but that's what happens. Like People mm. have had police reports open up against them for hate speech, mm. for trying to suggest that women's sports should be closed to females only. Mm. So I'm very sympathetic to women. Like, but yeah. But there's definitely, again... Four years ago compared to now, there are now groups, there are now women athletes who are very vocal, mm. there are people who are speaking in the media. That wasn't happening four years ago. Yeah. And That's I think critical. sports organizations now are starting to pay attention and mm. realize that actually this is not about one group, mm. it's about two. Because I'd like to get somebody on the podcast that talks on behalf of women's sport about this issue and mm. vocally because that's the voice that we really want to hear more than we want to hear our voices and to some well, extent because yeah, and it, it and changes I, the it changes the perception of what this is actually doing it's a bit like doping i remember interviewing somebody for for our for our bicycling magazine who had been affected by the doping era where he wasn't a doper and he wrote about the fact that if it wasn't for dopers he would have been you know one of the top 3 in the in the country and it's the same thing here it's mm. the story of the person who doesn't manage to make it because of the the unfairness of the behavior right. of other and people. That, and, and that's the thing is people are so lousy at like making mm. these, reaching a strong position on conceptual arguments. They have to see it and feel it before they know it. Yeah. And so we, we and, and a number of people, even before me, I'm not going to say I'm one of the first, warned about this issue years ago and said, this is what's going to happen. But there wasn't great uptake of that message. But when you had Laurel Hubbard in the Olympic Games depriving a young lifter of a chance to yeah, be this there. this is a New Zealand yeah. transgender. When you had Leah Thomas winning an, Olymp- uh, an yeah. NCAA title, and, swimming, and even yeah. before that, the Ivy League titles and so yeah. forth, then the swimmers and the mothers of those swimmers and the parents, the fathers, then yes. they started to speak out, you see. Yes. And that's one of those groups is icons who I went... Look, the Leah Thomas issue certainly highlighted it. Yeah, yeah. yeah then, so. then you had Emily Bridges. And remember then those... And, and that UK women's cycling system was powerful. Powerful, mm. had big names in it. Remember, you had like multiple medal winners and mm. Olympic legends. They spoke out. Now you've got athletes from the UK speaking out. Mm. What, it, what it needs is like, okay, Alison Felix is retired, but if Alison Felix was beaten yes. in a 401 athlete, then it would become an issue. Yeah. But because people needed to see it to believe it, mm. which is wrong. You should have known it based on theory before you saw it in practice. Yeah. But that's where we are. Yeah, it's an it's an interesting one and um, makes a lot of sense to us. But yeah, let us know what you think about this issue and how people are addressing it. Let's move on to some other stuff. Um, obviously, we don't always talk about doping, or mm. it sometimes feels like we do. But an interesting case, Peter Bowl, the Australian athlete, yeah. uh, a doping story there, which is interesting because it's kind of unique in the way that they dealt with the samples there. Yeah, um, unusual because... The A and the B sample didn't agree with one another. Mm. So just to let and people so, know, you, you get an A sample, and yeah. if you're positive, you then have a right to ask for the B sample to be tested. And they are the same. They are from the same source. That's not like mm. they're measured separately. It's not like you give your A sample on a Monday and your B sample mm. on a Tuesday morning. The, yeah. the sample you provide at the time of testing is split. Split. Yeah. So that there's a because you do get a risk of false positive tests in any test. You know, everyone knows mm. knows about this from COVID testing. Yeah. But sometimes you get a false positive result, and so the B sample is there to verify the A sample. Mm. 
And they don't always test the B sample unless the athlete asks. The athlete can request it, right, which yeah. they usually do, which they because usually they, do. they're <laughs> looking, either stalling or, or hoping for a miracle or, while they look for their um, supplement <laughs> or food. We'll get to some of those in a moment. But it does, it does sometimes happen, and I, I wanted to say thanks to many of you who mailed me on this, either directly on Patreon or Twitter or Instagram, because obviously those of you in Oz, and we have a number of listeners, it was a big story there, because mm. Peter Ball was fourth at the Olympics he's a Commonwealth medalist and one of their rising stars and so this was a big deal for them mm. and then Joshua Stacy sent me what I think is probably the best article so far that summarizes what's happened it's a little bit opinionated mm. because it's written for an Australian um, newspaper and it's as you can imagine sympathetic to our, our guy Yes. So you, again, you, this whole issue breaks down classically along lines of our guy's the good guy and you must be bad guys. If this was a Russian athlete, that newspaper would not have carried a sympathetic piece. A Kenyan athlete, no way this article gets written. right? <laughs> but, and similarly, the UK media is not writing this about an Aussie. They're skeptical because right. he's theirs, not ours, right? So you get this too. But what happened is Peter Ball turns out... 800 meter runner. Eh? 800 meter yeah. guy. Turns out that he was tested. He had 26 tests done on him last year. Massive number. Mm -hmm. Now, 16 of those were urine and 10 blood. That doesn't mean he was tested 26 times. He could have been tested 16 times and they took blood 10 of those 16. Right. You know what I mean? So yeah. I would like to know how many testing missions there were, not mm -hmm. tests done. Because mm -hmm. sometimes one mission equals two tests. Makes sense. Because mm -hmm. a lot of media are saying, oh, 26 tests. It's yeah. actually 16. 16. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it could, I mean, it could be 26. Maybe they did 16 blood tests and 10, 16 urine, mm. but we don't know that. Yeah. Anyway, um, so then so why, why would he have been tested so much? And what subsequently emerged is that over a year ago, he'd produced what's called an atypical finding in one of his tests. Now, the, this is, and this is what people must realize, is that these tests are not black and white. Mm -hmm. They, it's particularly the EPO, it relies to some degree on a subjective assessment of what that result, look, result looks like because they do what's called a gel analysis and mm -hmm. it, it shows these little bands and if EPO is there then you get a little band where there shouldn't be a band in a negative sample and that requires basically a pair of eyes from an expert to say that's a positive sample and what's happened here is that they've assessed a year ago that he had an equivocal sample, uncertain not clearly positive. So it's a bit like the, a bit everybody knows what the COVID test looks like. So it's the one where... Right, and it's not... It's, it's doesn't give you, it doesn't say mm. you're positive or negative. It's yeah. the same sort of thing. Exactly. So, right. so this one, you, you, you're kind of looking for this presence of this protein on this gel. And you get like a gray smudge as opposed to a thick black line. You say, that could be positive, mm. but it's not enough for me to say yes. Because mm. there has to be some fail-safe built-ins that you don't catch guys too many times for false positives right so anyway so it turns out ball had an atypical that's called an atypical finding not positive but not negative in between right <laughs> and, and that's probably the catalyst why he's tested so often he stopped at the airport they search his bags he goes away he comes back they search him again so australian anti-doping have obviously now said this is a guy we need to target test and so that's why they've done all <laughs> he's these on tests. the radar he's exactly exactly <laughs> So based on intelligence and a previous suspicious test, they throw everything at him. And sure enough, he fails a test, I think it was towards the end of last year. He says, no, I want to test my B sample. So they go away and test that, and that comes back atypical. So not clean, not clear, mm. negative, but not positive. So now mm. he's got a positive A and an unclear B. Right. Which means oh, he's got a positive A. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So the A sample in the recent test okay. was positive. Right. 
But they contested that on the basis that it wasn't positive, it was also unclear. Mm. So the B sample turns out unclear. So now the, the authorities can't sanction mm. because they don't have the confirmation of two positives. The what, lawyers, he, what did he post, test positive for? EPO. EPO, okay. Yeah. Right. And so the lawyers are saying, no, uh, we, we, we reject this. We say the first positive test was only marginal. Mm-hmm. Now, they say that they're basically, they're, they, we put this protein in these little channels and then it runs under electrical currents. And if there's a protein, you get a black line. They're saying, not clear enough. And we shouldn't have had a positive test. It was only marginal. It should have been atypical from the start. The B sample is atypical, so they'll mm. say we're vindicated. Mm. I'd say they're both atypical mm. at best. <laughs> so something needs to be done. So he'll still be under investigation. And it's not the first time, by the way. Stephen Colvert was an Irish sprinter years ago now, like seven, eight years ago. And he failed an EPO test and similarly took his case to appeal on the grounds that the subjective interpretation of his test wasn't clear and that he should never have been given a positive in the first place. And a couple of Norwegian scientists weighed in on that issue. And they say there's no basis to say Colvert didn't dope, but no basis to say that he did either. Mm. So you get caught in a kind of anti-doping purgatory here. Mm. And I think that might be what's happened with Peter Boll. They also said some other things, like the lawyers, they said, why would he be doping in October? This was when the, the positive test was produced, just back from holidays and months before racing again. Well... I would argue that that's an anti- antiquated way of thinking about doping because EPO doping might be very beneficial in that base phase as you're building back towards fitness and you can do a little bit more, get the foundation laid a little mm. bit earlier and a little bit more solidly before the season mm. starts, right? And also less likely to be testing, getting tested during that's, competition. Now. That's your window, uh, of less, yeah. less chance, exactly. So I wasn't 100% sure that that's true because I reckon if you're – in that phase of ramping training up big time after mm. your off season and rest period, I think I could see why you would take small mm. amounts of EPO just to get you back into mm. the flow of things. But I mean, legally speaking, he's he's innocent. And well, <laughs> he's he's not prosecutable. He's not he's not, he's not guilty. When he's not yes. Right. Exactly. So again, it's a, it's really really similar to the Colbert case. And I'll read you that headline again. This is the Norwegian experts. There's no basis to say that Calvert didn't dope. There's no basis to say that Peter Ball didn't dope. But equally, there's no basis to say he did. Mm. And so we don't know. Yeah. And so the investigation, Australian anti-doping will have to continue on him. And they'll probably continue to test him aggressively. Someone has to explain why an athlete can have two atypical samples in about a year. Like say, what's the source of that yeah, atypical yeah. <laughs> sample? I mean, two, yeah. you know, one atypical, fine. Two, two false. And I don't know, actually, oh, unusual, what the, I don't know what the specificity of the test is. That would be quite useful to know. So, yeah, that's the ball situation. But as you can if imagine... If I was him, I wouldn't have two double espressos in the next six months. <laughs> well, he's, he's going to be watched like a hawk. Yeah, exactly. He'll, <laughs> he'll, be, he'll be massively under the yes. spotlight now. And then there was controversy around why they announced the A sample before testing the B. Which, you know, that used to yeah. be the thing, right? You used to never announce that A sample. We used to test the B and then say Yes, because you often, when I was working in athletics yeah. up in, for an agency, that you, you could never, we'd get wind of a, of, a, of a sample that had tested positive, but they would never officially announce anything until B had been mm, somewhere out. Somewhere along the way, that's I changed. I suppose it's Because you, you'll often hear about an A sample. Yes. With, and then it the athletes, yeah. Mm. And the story here mm. is that Peter Ball was a nominee for the Young Australian of the Year Award, you know, each mm. state. So he was the West Australian nominee. 
And I think he was favoured to win that. Mm. And I think they might have been concerned that he'd win it and then they'd have to announce that he was um, a doper. Right. And so it would tarnish the, the award. I mean, that's possible, right? That's no. an awkward situation to be in. Yeah. I understand that. But as it's turned out, they've announced it and then his B sample's atypical. So, in fact, the test should go away. Mm. But it's still like, there's so much grey there that in a in a in a climate of doping in sports, very difficult to to tease that out. You know, one thing it doesn't do is it doesn't help anti-doping when it becomes apparent that the tests are not foolproof. Mm. You know, that's that's a awkward situation. Yeah. Mm. Another doping story that's sort of cropped up in the last couple of weeks is was submitted by Gareth Finn and uh, Martin on our Patreon mm. feed talking yeah. about Connor Ben, the, the boxer. Yeah. Um, so, that's also another interesting one, isn't it? Yeah, so Finn, Gareth D and Martin Hawkins all yeah. messaged about the same one. Connor Ben is the boxer we spoke about last year where he failed a test before a big fight. And they subsequently said, no, the fight will go ahead. And then eventually they said, no, the fight can't go ahead because you've got a doping violation hanging, hanging over mm. one of your fighters. And in boxing, that's quite unusual that they don't. Right. There's all sorts of boxing <laughs> things that allow boxers have to both agree that they're going to do doping tests. They're going to both agree that they are um, uh, able to fight. So it's, it's, there's yeah, not as many it, controls in boxing. And it is the Wild West. It boxing is. really yeah, boxing seems is, like yeah. all over the place. You think other sports are bad. This, I think yeah. boxing's bad. So it's happened us that the World Boxing Council, which initially removed Ben from its rankings after that failed test, also last year in October, have now reinstated him because he's he was able to put to them a case that explains why he failed this test. Mm. And his explanation is the high consumption of eggs mm. at the time of testing. Now, what, so, he was, what he was found, that, what, what he, the contaminant I've never heard of. What was it again? So it's called clomiphene. Clomiphene, yes. Drug, I've ne- right? never so heard of clomiphene that. Clomiphene is a selective androgen modulator. Selective estrogen receptor modulator, rather, sorry. Select CERM, it's a CERM. Selective estrogen receptor modulator. And it's used therapeutically to induce ovulation, so in women. What? But the story is I'm that it's used, the benefit by, it's used been. by boxers because in males it stimulates the production of testosterone. Uh-huh. So the story is, and this, this came up in social media from a number of guys who know the world of doping, is that when you are doping with steroid hormones and your body shuts off its own production, Mm. you have to then restart it when you stop doping. And clomiphene is the way you jumpstart the uh, jumpstart your own okay. production. Right? So clomiphene is used at the end of a testosterone cycle to bring the natural testosterone levels back up. Make sense? Right. Yeah. Okay. Now, I, look, the, 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 this, this is probably a subject to be continued because I need to go look into it a lot more. I don't know what the level of clomiphene in Ben's samples was and how many eggs he say he ate. <laughs> he says he ate. But what I can tell you is that as far back as 2020, world, sorry, in fact, this might have been 2008, World of WADA, the anti-doping agency, published a short manuscript called Are Poultry and Eggs a Source of Minute Amounts of Clomiphene in Doping Control Samples? Mm. And it was headed up by a guy called Mario Tevis from the Cologne University. And I was then able to find a paper that was published by Tevis's group. This one was published in 2021 in a journal called Food Additives and Contaminants. And the title of the article is Depletion of Clomiphene Residues in Eggs and Muscle After Oral Administration to Laying Hens. And so what they did in this study was for 28 days, they gave a bunch of egg-laying hens a dose of clomiphene every morning, yeah. every day. And then they measured the eggs and the chicken breasts produced off these hens 
for traces of clomiphene. And I'll read to exactly what it says. It says, clomiphene was detectable in eggs two days after the beginning of the drug administration period. Drug concentration increased within each egg within one week. And after withdrawal of clomiphene, residues decreased after four days. So the, the finding here is that if you give hens clomiphene, which is done to stimulate ovulation, so you get more eggs off a, off a hen, right? Yeah. That clomiphene does appear in the eggs in the muscle of that, of that bird, that hen, mm-hmm. chicken, right? Right. Whether or not that's enough to explain Ben's positive, I don't know how many chickens or eggs you'd need to eat mm. to trigger what he has done. That's what I want to go and look into. But the point is that Wad is aware of this, and so the conclusion of this paper is overall, these results underline concerns that clomiphene may be transferred into animal-derived food, and future research will need to focus on assessing and minimizing the risk of unintentional adverse analytical findings. Now, I reckon the lawyers saw this, Ben's yep. lawyers, and they said, hallelujah, because yep. they couldn't blame beef like others had. Yes. There was no, there was no um, dodgy burrito like Shelby Houlihan, mm-hmm. and they said, clomiphene is our answer. Yes, because there's, there's as, some evidence without any proof. Right, and as I understand mm. it, clomiphene is not part of the UK food system. Mm. So there's no reason a hen in England should be given this drug. Mm. If they have, then it's illegal farming or agricultural practice. And so it reminded me a lot of the Houlihan case because she, remember, she had to prove that the beef in a burrito, which wasn't beef, it was actually like some... Pork meat, I think it was, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, it was... Something it was, like she, that. She'd ordered a beef burrito, but she, she apparently she got greasy pork. And just, it was and boar, it was, actually, wasn't it? That's what she had to yeah, prove eventually, proved, yeah, that it yeah. was the... Uh, right intestines and other internal mm. organs of boar mm. that had been treated with nandrolone. Mm. She was unable to do that in part because experts on agriculture testified to say that this stuff isn't in the U.S. agricultural system. Right. Uh, it's in Mexico and China and so on. And I think this might be the same for the Ben story. Mm. Um, but we don't know that. But what I, what I can say is that in the World Boxing Council statement, they basically said, um, and I wanted to read this, they said in a statement that the Ben's team had provided a detailed breakdown of his diet and supplement consumption that could have directly affected the adverse finding. Having consulted an expert nutritionist, the WBC said it found there was no conclusive evidence that Ben engaged in intentional or knowing ingestion of clomiphene. Now, as I understood it, the anti-doping system is supposed to say that the athlete must prove where it came from if not doping. Mm-hmm. The way they've worded this is they were looking for evidence that it was intentional and it should be the other way around. So I'm not exactly sure how that plays out. I do know that the Boxing Board of Control in Britain and UK Anti-Doping are continuing to investigate. So I would imagine that there would be an appeal against this Boxing Council ruling. (laughs) And so it's going to be another messy one. Maybe it lands up in, Mm. in the Court of Arbitration and we get another lesson in farming procedures and agriculture of chickens this time it's a bizarre one isn't it yeah crazy imagine eating too many eggs yeah to fail a drug test that's you'd have to prove a couple you'd have to show his so show his till slips from the local um <laughs> shopping spree that he has to see how many eggs yeah. he'd have four to dozen eggs a weekend because that would have happened i mean let's face it at least do a lot of protein and a lot of eggs mm. and there would have been cases of this beforehand theoretically that right. not just hairs alone yeah and that this would have happened it just seems yeah so the, 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 the not, calculus he wouldn't be the only athlete in the world that it would have yeah, it seems surprising uh, that it would mm, be that way, right? That's, that's um, the legal tactic. So you'd have to say, okay, how many eggs did you eat? What's mm. the maximum potential concentration mm. or content of clomiphene in the mm. eggs? And when were you tested in relation to eating it? Because mm. if you ate them all on a Saturday, Sunday and tested Monday morning, mm. 
and the level in your urine was low enough, maybe it could be consistent. Mm. But I don't know that they did that. I mean, that's why I want to find the actual case and the decision. I don't know if it'll ever be published, but then we can revisit it in more detail. Mm. Nuts. Yeah, so if you eat a lot of eggs and you feel like you want to have an egg, then you probably had too many <laughs> eggs. But uh, <laughs> we'll see how that one rolls out. And then the <laughs> final one, uh, which you mentioned, and it leads us into our topic of the discussion today, and, and to some extent, uh, just talking about a thread that was seen by one of our patrons talking about how doping can be seen through biomechanics, which I find extraordinary when it's when I when you when first read it. But actually, in theory, there's some. In my, you know, I guess when you look at an athlete, when they have this sort of, there's something about a, a, a stronger athlete, which I suppose you could measure, which would make them, you know, you look at an athlete that potentially isn't as fluid as a natural athlete that is just brilliant because they are doped or stronger yeah. or whatever. I don't know. I mean, it's, I, I, there is, it sounds preposterous to suggest that biomechanics could detect doping, but I'm not so sure that it's that preposterous, to be honest. Is I think, it? I think at the at the level and in the and in the group of athletes that we'd be looking at, the difference in biomechanics from athlete A, B, and C are, is so small that it doesn't work as a differentiator to identify who might be doping. If if you have someone who's got the most horrendous biomechanics you've ever seen, and they're still running world class times, then maybe you can say we've got to explain that athlete's running ability independent yeah. of their economy of movement and their mechanical effectiveness and efficiencies right that's that's but, the point yeah but i don't think that those that extreme difference in biomechanics exists in elite athletes i think they're all the fact that they get to some level of elite is probably indicative of the fact that they've already got good biomechanics although we don't necessarily always understand what that means so i, I think it's too blunt to use if i if, if it was me, for instance, and I, my appalling biomechanics, if I suddenly started showing up running a 16-minute 5K, you might say, hang on, something's not right there. That guy there should not be a 16-minute guy. <laughs> yes, exactly. But, because you, if you watch enough not, sport, you can see a fluid athlete. You can see an athlete that's clearly got the biomechanics that yeah. do. But you do get a sense sometimes when you look at athletes and you go like, that person looks awkward, and you know, but I, yet they're right there. I don't know wow. how that works in elite athletes, though. Yeah. Because... Elite athletes, if, you, if, it, if it's a difference between a 13.30 guy and a 12.50 guy over 5K or mm. a, a 3.27 to 3.35, you know, those eight seconds, there's no obvious biomechanics that explains those eight seconds that I'm aware of. Mm. And we'll get onto this in the main part of the show. Biomechanics is so messy and it's so complex. And the interconnectedness of it all is, is makes it very difficult to say that's a clear biomechanical deficiency and you can only overcome that with doping. You know what I mean? Like there's no, there's no one thing like that. Remember, for instance, Michael Johnson? Yeah. Like yeah. when they used to say, how can this guy run a 43? Well... <laughs> Maybe by this model of this guy, Jonathan Marcus, but maybe bit, he's going to say it's a doping, it's an indicator of doping. But I don't think that it is. I think there's more than one way to to run mechanically world class times. That's the problem. I'll give you, I'll give you another example of how I can sort of explain my view on this. So I remember watching at the 1992 Olympics in Barcelona, 93 World Championship in Athletics in Stuttgart, and watching the end of. Um, Carl Lewis's career and Dennis Mitchell was 
in around that sort of time as well. And I always used to be amazed and watching the fluidity of Carl Lewis. He would get out the blocks reasonably slowly, but he would always, midway through the race, his just latent athletic ability always got him ahead. And of course, Carl Lewis is slightly tainted himself. I agree <laughs> with that. Yeah. But, but I think there was an athletic ability there that was different from the normal ability. You look at a guy like Dennis Mitchell, who didn't have that, but was, was, there was a whole string of athletes like that. They were fast out the blocks. They were built powerfully. They overcame their relative lack of athletic ability compared to the Lewis's of this world, and they were still competitive. That makes me believe that biomechanics play a massive role in how good an athlete is and how much can doping overcome a lack relative. This is all relative. I agree that at that level, mm. they're all pretty good. But to get that 1% extra... Some might dope. Some might just have athletic ability. Yeah, but the uh, thing is, the, the thing is, they're too. At that level, once you t- look at that level, you're already scraping the cream off the top of the coffee, as it were, the cappuccino yeah, yeah, or the yeah. or the whatever I just had over here with the cream on it, mm, hot chocolate. And so yes, <laughs> with caffeine, a, a, a mocha. A mocha. Once ordered, once in Boulder. I was once in Boulder and I ordered a mocha at the thing, you know, and but I said mocha because that's how we say it, right? Mm. And I got this green tea thing. I said, what is this? I said, that's a matcha. Because <laughs> apparently there's like a herbal right. tea thing. There we go. It's like, come on, man. It's my there accent this bad. That's a tip. That was bolder. So now I, whenever I order a mocha, I say a mocha. Right. Anyways. Ross's travel tip. Way, way, way off point. I, I don't think, I was, at a, I was at a track meeting on Tuesday. You know, I'm doing this workout at Stellenbosch with Ilana Mayer and, and the school kids. Yes. And I sat there and I watched 1500s, 800s, 400s. Great fun. Really enjoyed it. Yeah. Every winner of every race was quite a good standard meeting. Every winner of every race looked like a great athlete. Mm. So if you put all those athletes into one race, you would not be able with your eye to say which of these is biomechanically perfect versus way off. But do you think but, there's a difference between the winner of the races versus the 10th place finish yes, in that race? Right, biomechanically. So big difference. Even between third and fourth. Right. And winner. Which is my point. But you're, that's taking from the bottom of, that's taking from the middle of the athletic population. By the time they make it to SA Champs, if you looked at that eight athletes in the final, more difficult. By the time you get to the Olympics, impossible. Mm. Because, yes, the difference, we, we had a guy at Stellenbosch, uh, you ran a 155-800 with a 55-second lap. Amazing. Looks like Asbel Kiprop. Just mm. looks different. Yes. Beat a guy in a sprint. Amazing race. Also, looked beautiful runner. Mm. The guy in fourth place looked like he was dragging a piano behind him. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> By comparison, right? Yeah. Still not bad. Ran a 203 or something, but like not, not, not like this, you know, yeah. for these kids. Mm. But by the time these kids get to SA Champs, everyone will look like them. Because that's what happens. We filter yeah. out inefficiencies. So by the time oh. you're looking at Jared Naguse, because that's the athlete that this Jonathan Marcus's tweet was about, you're already looking at a guy in a race against 10 or 7 or whatever it is of the best distance runners in the world. Mm. And you're comparing him to other athletes like Komen and Gabriel Selassie or Algarouge or Noah Nguyen or pick your Ingebrigtsen and whatever, who's best in history, right? Then I don't think biomechanics has the precision to be able to tell apart who needs to be doping and who doesn't. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Because basically what, what Marcus does, and again, we'll put this thread in the show notes, as he says, relative to results, I find Nagusa's stride to be problematic, and I don't think his results should be taken at face value. So, effectively, it's a, it's a doping accusation. Here's why. And then he's got a picture of him running, and he talks about his late propulsive thrust, which is suboptimal, and about the position of his pelvis when he strikes the ground, and he's in an anterior tilt. And I don't want to go into the detail of biomechanics in part, because I don't really know it enough to challenge this. But I will say 
with the biomechanics work that we've done in the past, nobody really knows what optimal looks like. You can mm. tell what's really bad, but there are 15 moving parts in a biomechanics assessment. And you might not be optimal in one, but you make up for it in five of the other 15. You know what I mean? And so, so he talks about this suboptimal and he compares it, for instance, to Marcel Jacobs, which is, I mean, how can you compare a 1500 runner to a 100 meter sprinter? That seems a bit dodgy to me. Mm. And he goes on to say that the super shoes must be part of Nagusi's performance, but he thinks that uh, Nagusi must be performing at a superhuman level despite a suboptimal stride. And I just don't think it's as simple as that. Is the is the point? I don't think. I mean, every Gabriel Selassie didn't have a perfect stride. Kipchoge's got some imperfect biomechanics. If you really try yeah. and break it down and look at those yeah. fifteen or if you two look dozen at it in a scientific biomechanical space, yeah. I would probably agree with that. Mm. But I think I think if you took if you took you know fifteen you know or ten of the world's top coaches and and you put a group of young athletes on a track and you made them run individual time trials without looking at a clock, I would say that most of those coaches would be able to look at the athlete they thought was the best from their biomechanics. I'm Ing- t- I mean, I'm, it's hypothetical. But Ingebrigtsen and Kiprop. Yeah, again, they're not, they're not classics, but they, but they still look fast. Ingebrigtsen looks fast. He doesn't look awkward. He doesn't look... But who, who, in a, who in a Diamond League final 1500 or an Olympic 1500 final does look awkward? Well, it's all relative. I mean, yeah, yeah I agree with you. I mean, those guys, they're, they're at a certain level, it's difficult to differentiate yeah. an athlete that looks awkward. But there's an athlete that we've interviewed on, on this podcast. I won't mention her name, but a very good 5,000, 10,000 meter often gets to the final Olympic Games running mm. a first marathon mm. coming up soon. Well, I'll, I'll say who it is, Dom, Dominic Scott. Um, she very, very competent runner, but mm. not the fluidity of a 10,000 meter medalist. No. But could be no. a brilliant marathon runner, purely because she's got the biomechanics that suit marathon and half marathon distance running. But that's a prime example of somebody who you look at her and you compare her to people in the 10,000 and she doesn't have the same fluidity that the winners of her event mm. have particularly for that distance yeah but I reckon if we told 10 coaches to explain what that thing was that told them that we'd get 7 different answers maybe but sometimes it's, but it's very subjective in, in Scott's case it's just the fact that she's not as tall with the le- femur length and the leg length yeah. as some of the others like you look at Ayana when she broke the 10k world record mm. in the final in Rio and I remember she lapped Scott just before the finish line for the second time Yeah, and like the juxtaposition of the two athletes they do they look different same exactly. as Asbel Kiprop looks completely different to most humans in life yeah. okay, and he's maybe not a great example because yeah. he was a doper himself or mm. failed an EPO test anyways mm. so, so yeah I mean if, if Scott was to suddenly run 14.20 like that maybe some people would say oh, hang on a moment here but I'd argue that everyone running within two percent of the best guy in an event is already close enough to biomechanically optimal mm. that it's not going to be obvious as an indicator of doping mm. and besides if i was looking at Nagusa, you know he ran the second fastest mile time ever broke the north american 3000 record like around 728 i think it was mm. this is all indoor by the way 347 mile i mean i think the bigger reason to suspect doping is that he's running fast <laughs> yes. like that's like mm. I'd be more inclined to say performance is an indicator than biomechanics mm. but but yeah I mean I don't think you can 
say mm. this guy is likely doping because he's suboptimal biomechanically. Mm. Too many things are connected. I often wonder if I went on, on, a, on, a, on a heavy um, drug rut- uh, routine and uh, took everything I possibly could, could I get my dodgy 27-minute 5K down to sub-20? Because that would be fairly obvious that I don't look like a sub-20 minute 5K runner. Yeah, yeah you'd have um, to have a massive engine to yeah, do that but, with your but, frame. But would drugs do enough to make me a possibly a sub-20 minute runner compared to my 27? <laughs> I don't, I don't about know. a 35% benefit. <laughs> yeah. That seems a bit yes, much. Yes, it does seem a bit much. But, uh, yeah, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So anyway, that was submitted by Owen uh, yeah. Yeah, on, that's a great on, one. on Patreon. Really good question. And Owen basically said he had issues with a thread. Is One, the picture he used was taken at an unfair time. So he's not comparing like to like. Two is he's applying one specific biomechanical principle when performance is a combination of different things. And I think that's the main one. That's the main point. And as we get into the barefoot running thing, you're going to hear this theme again is mm. there are there are 15 things you could look at at biomechanics and that's mm. oversimplifying it. And so to pick one, the angle of your, your pelvis and say you're using a late thrust and say that's not, that's too blunt. You're overusing mm. a tool there. You're mm. using a, I don't know, like a baseball bat to perform surgery. Mm. I mean, Jonathan Marcus is probably going to give us quite a lot of uh, future podcasts uh, subjects because he's quite controversial in yeah. the stuff that he says. So, uh, and if you want to follow him, he's, he is on Twitter. Um, but uh, look at it with a fair amount of cynicism. Exactly. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. You know, talking about cynicism and skeptics, um, the subject of today's podcast, and we'll get to it now, is from an article on this wonderful website which Ross found called The Skeptical Inquirer, uh, which I actually thought was Ross for a while, but it's not. Um, <laughs> the Skeptic's Guide to Sports Science. And uh, that's, it really is. I've had a bit of a look around the website. There's some wonderful stuff on there. And uh, it's great. Uh, in terms of you know looking at the world of uh, sports science but the article that was written by Nick Tiller and uh, released on the February the 17th which is a great day because it's also my birthday and it's called Barefoot Running Conspiracies and Controversies now it feels like ah okay the barefoot running story we've had this discussion before there's been lots of things about it to to give some background Born to Run was a book that uh, Christopher McDougall wrote I don't know 2009, what, I 2009, think it was. Yeah. Okay, which really just changed the, the 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 sport, and there was always talk about how minimalist running was going to make you better biomechanically. It was going to cure your injuries. It was going to change the way you ran. It was all sorts of things. Uh, as a result of that, a whole bunch of new products came out, which were minimalist running. There was Vibram Five Fingers. There was all these sort of things. Everybody started running in sandals and <laughs> the minimalist sandal. And I, I, to be honest with you, I I bought into it massively. So I I, I do. There's some element of that that I kind of get. Now there's a second book out actually, which is not related to the article that was written uh, by Christopher McDougall, which kind of follows the theme. And we ran a story in Runner's World um, in our latest issue a little bit about that. And to some extent, I the sentiments of that article are I like. It's about the purity of running. It's about feeling your feet and feeling the earth and all that sort of thing. And it's very sort of, uh, I don't know, 
pie in the sky type of stuff. But I quite like the feeling about that, the joy of running and, and those sort of things. So there is a lot of good feeling around Christopher McDougall, the way he writes. He's got a very convincing and very uh, nice way of explaining what running is about. So as a result of this, the barefoot running craze really did take off. Now it's, yeah. it's waned a bit now, but yeah. this latest article really does question, first of all, Christopher McDougall and his research and his writing mm. and kind of rethinks what we think about the, the evidence and the science behind this. Yeah, and it's a classic, I think, example of how a concept ran ahead of the research and people bought into an idea without evidence and then 10 years later, no evidence has come out in support of that idea. And so naturally the market has shrunk, but there's still a small enough sustainable niche to keep people interested, mm. right? So what I mean by that is that in 2009, the book comes out and it tells the story about those Taramara Indians, their sandals, their superhuman long distances, the way that running is part of their life. Mm. In 2010, a paper comes out by Daniel Lieberman, who's a Harvard professor, which gets him automatically like credibility points because mm -hmm. Harvard, right? Even that's not true. <laughs> but still, he comes out with a paper published in Nature, which is more points because it's Nature, even though that's also not true. Also, also credible, <laughs> credible publication. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah. exactly. But what Lieberman shows is fuel on a fire that was lit by Born to Run and McDougall. Mm. Because now all of a sudden, Lieberman is arguing, and he showed this in his paper, that if you take people's shoes off and you make them run barefoot, the loading rate when they hit the ground is lower. Mm. Because you land on the front part of your foot, your ankle works more as a cushion, your knees more flexed, and so your whole leg, this is the theory, right? We'll get into the reality, and we'll test that theory in a moment. Your whole leg is more of a cushion, and you've got a softer landing with more flexion, more plantar flexion of the foot, better so for So your you. body adapts because it can feel more. That's, yeah, and so, because if you didn't adapt, the shock would be sent through your skeleton if you landed on the heel without the cushioning of a shoe. Right. You'd have this ground reaction force up through your skeleton, and it's a lot, and so he, Lieberman speaks about impact transients. Now, I've subsequently met a lot of biomechanists who have massively questioned the validity of that, the, what's the importance of this impact transient or that initial loading rate. There's peak forces, there's average forces, there's rates of force to, um, loading or application. They dispute these issues extensively. You know, I subsequently discovered there's camps in biomechanics, some of whom buy into the loading rate theory, some buy into the peak force theory. Yeah. And they don't, you know, it's almost like a, I'm not going to say a religion, but it's two paradigms around injury and so on in biomechanics. Right. But anyway, by 2010, the, the, the barefoot running industry is accelerating. And by 2011, 12, there are barefoot shoes because you can't sell nothing, right? So these shoe companies are like, right, how are we going to sell nothing? We'll make barefoot shoes. Yes. And I remember actually you were in the Sports Science Institute at the same time as me. And you asked a question at, a, at an event once. Do you remember that? I don't, I don't remember the event. I was hoping you would. But basically, Tim Noakes was up front. And there was, mm. a, I think it was the launch of a shoe company's barefoot shoe. I don't remember whose. And you basically said, is this a fad or is this barefoot running thing here to stay? Mm. And Tim Hospital passed it to me. So I ended up answering your question in the auditorium. And I remember saying, I think <laughs> I, I think I was the ex the MC for that event. Were you? <laughs> yes, I think so. <laughs> what was it then? Do you remember? It, it was a launch. I can't remember what it was now. Or it, was, it might have been in discussion with you and Tim Noakes, but yeah, yeah. I, I, I vaguely I, remember it. I distinctly remember this question. I remember <laughs> nothing else about it, but this question. I was like, geez, and I'm on the spot. And I remember guessing that it'll probably be like a sustainable niche. Because mm. at that time, 
like people were buying into it massively remember there were barefoot runners all over the place and Mm. and it felt a little bit even then that in time it would wane but there were enough people who were clearly highly committed Mm. evangelists that Mm. it wouldn't go away you know, it wasn't like let's dabble in this like the power balance bracelets here today, gone tomorrow. This was mm. clearly had a bit more staying power, but did feel in the beginning oversold, I thought. Because the promise was quite real in that you, the, 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 the argument was that shoes that were highly controlling your foot and that sort of thing were actually creating the problem. And there was some research saying that, and I, I, I'll need to find the paper and put it in the show notes, but there was some research done where they they researched three and a half thousand runners and the conclusion they came to was that the more technology involved in a shoe the more likely you were to be injured so the counterbalance to that was the less technology the therefore the less injured you will be yeah so they've been and i remember this at the time so so my own personal involvement was i was interested in this someone gave me born to run while i was in boulder again Mm, we're back in boulder it's a great book actually it's it's really well written and he mm. constructs the argument in a way that's very compelling and that's why it was the fire and then subsequently Lieberman bought the fuel. Um so so I think I think there was there was a theoretical basis that was quite appealing to people. And I mm. remember reading it and saying, Well, okay, yeah. let me and I wrote a couple of things on my website back in the day before this podcast exists or Twitter and so on. And I remember getting an invite then to a conference in London where I was asked to chair a session on barefoot running. And on that session, Lieberman was there. He'd come over from Boston. There's another guy called Daniel Howell, who was like the original barefoot professor, 95% Mm. of his life barefoot, lectures barefoot, runs barefoot, (laughs) very committed. Guy called Simon Bartold was there. He's a podiatrist who was with Essex, an Australian guy. I don't know if you've ever met him. Yes, another name. Quite prominent in the world. And I think there was one other who who I now forget. And I had to chair this debate, and it was basically the pro shoe versus anti shoe. <laughs> it mm. was like that. It was mm. like it was like you'd have now with carbs and with uh, mm. take your pick vaccines. <laughs> I mean, that's what it was like, <laughs> except on a footwear yes. scale. Yes. And uh, yeah, no resolution reached. But I remember meeting Lieberman, and the year after, I was in Boston, and he gave me a pair of those Vibram shoes. You know, the five finger shoes. Mm. So I said, I'm going to try this because I was open minded enough. And I'll say the following things is like running barefoot is hell of a fun. It's really cool. It does. It feels good. I, f- I feel good running barefoot. Yeah. But I can't, I couldn't, at the first day I ran, I couldn't do more than five, six hundred meters. Mm. My feet got too sore. Mm. Now, maybe if I'm running on a grass track or something very smooth, it'd be different. But around mm. here, <laughs> there's yes. not, Stones. not mm. much you can yes. run on. Yes. Maybe in Boston it was different for Lieberman and Co. Yeah. But uh, but then then I then I got into barefoot running quite a bit, and I got up to probably fifty sixty k a week of barefoot running. And let's also remind our listeners that you also climbed Kilimanjaro barefoot, <laughs> didn't you? Yeah, well that happened because of this. Because then I was interested in this. <laughs> so barefoot you were a convert. Thing. I wasn't a convert, but I was an experiment <laughs> on myself. Right. Yeah. Like I wasn't I wasn't going around at that stage telling everyone run barefoot. Mm. But I was like, let me let me look into this. I'm going to see if this thing works. And I picked up a PhD student at the time, a guy called Nick Tam, who subsequently did a PhD on barefoot running because we were interested in exploring whether this thing was legit or not. And so I was practicing on myself. And because I was studying it, some guys I know said, well, we're going to go up Kilimanjaro barefoot. Will you help us? So I said, no worries, let's go. And then one of the members dropped out because of work commitments. And they said, we've got a slot, come. So I ended up doing it with them barefoot. Yeah, so it was remarkable. So in the end, it was cool. I'm grateful to. I'm sure it was cold <laughs> barefoot too. running for that reason. <laughs> yeah, there was a bit of snow on the top, but we had, we had plans for that. That was one of my jobs was to come up with those, those cold prevention plans. Did you go down in barefoot as well? No, no, laced shoes up on the top and then ran down. 
So you, up all the way with bare feet and yeah, down with shoes. And then okay. down in shoes, yeah. Because yeah. oh, okay. <laughs> um, we had to, because of the cold, we had to go up after sunrise. We didn't want to mm. go up in the dark because normally you, you start the climb at like one in the morning and mm. you ascend summiting at sunrise. Mm. We went after sunrise so we could do it in the daytime just even to see where you're putting your foot sharp, yeah. sharp stones and stuff and for those in Europe who want to know where Kilimanjaro is it's in Africa and it's Africa's highest peak mm. what is the well, how high is it? 5.9 uh, 5.9 five, five, nine, that's mm. right yeah. just under 6 anyway, we digress but anyway yes. it's important context so anyway so Nick starts doing this study and, and there's a few things that we were interested in the thing that struck me and that I was most interested in is trying to explore whether there were differences in how different people adapted to barefoot running. Because if you read the Lieberman paper and the, the McDougall's book does this especially, is they, they talk about a change that you would expect with barefoot running that they imply is universal. Now, mm. everyone would get the same result. And that result is that when you take your shoes off and you run barefoot, your ankle points down. It's called plantar flexion. Think ballet dancer a little mm. bit more. Mm. You land on the front part of your foot instead of the heel. And your knees more cushioned, so you get cushioning as a consequence of how you change how you land. Makes mm. sense. So, which is literally how the body's designed, isn't it? The I mean, shift it's designed to do that. Well, yeah, maybe. Okay. Right. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so I'm getting ahead of myself because you see what Lieberman had done was that he, he did, the study that got all the attention was he went and he tested a whole bunch of people who'd worn shoes their whole lives, and a whole bunch of teenagers who'd never worn shoes before, so mm. habitually shod and habitually barefoot, and he gave the shod people shoes and barefoot running he gave the barefoot people shoes and barefoot running so what he finds is that if you are habitually barefoot and you run barefoot 90 percent of them land forefoot 10 percent don't which is why not interesting they're still our heel strikers even barefoot yeah okay but anyway nine out of ten forefoot when you put shoes on those kids who are normally barefoot 60 to 70 percent of them now land on Sorry, 50% of them land on the heel. So they move backwards, mm -hmm. right? So shoe allows me to land on the heel where normally I would land on the front of the foot. Now think about what happens to people who are habitually shod, like most of the people listening to this. When they are shod, 90% are heel strikers, 10% forefoot. So now it's a complete reverse of the habitually barefoot when barefoot. Right. You with me? Yes. So now you take their shoes off, chuck the shoes out and say run. The, the, the promise that was implied and in some instances made by McDougall and Born to Run is that you land on the front part of the foot. That only happens in about a third of people. So two-thirds of people don't make that shift initially. And that was really interesting to me. It was like, why are these people making this claim about a benefit? <laughs> and remember, the benefit was linked to the change in foot strike because that was the thing that was going to cause lower ground reaction forces and loading rates. Mm. But two-thirds of the time, it didn't happen. So say, oh, okay. Was there enough time to adapt? Well, that's the, so now that's the question is like, does is it a skill that needs to be acquired? Because, mm. because being habitually barefoot means you've had a lifetime of running barefoot. You know how to do it. Going from shoes to not being shod means that maybe you've got to allow some kind of adaptation period. That wasn't said in the book. That's the nuance that was missing from this mm. debate from the beginning. And that's what eventually landed Vibram up in a lawsuit because they, they, that company started under the premise that barefoot running was better for you. Mm. What does better for you mean? It means more likely that you will prevent injuries. You're less likely to be injured. But it didn't work because people would buy this Vibram shoe and they were running 5K six times a week. Now they were running 5K six times a week in Vibrams and they all got injured. 
Mm. Because because they were changing the load without changing the body's ability to handle the load, mm. right? But Vibram never warned them about that. <laughs> so it didn't say it's about adapting. They, exactly. They just went straight into it. Okay, right. Correct. Okay. And so a lawsuit was brought in 2012 by a woman in Boston, Valerie, Valerie someone. It was in this article that I mentioned. You remember that at the time, eh? Feels like an age ago that it happened, but yes. Yeah, I mean, over a decade now. So... So Valerie, Valerie Bezdek files lawsuits and eventually there's a whole bunch of lawsuits, class action, Vibram gets fined four million effectively for false advertising. Mm. And I remember being in, in the States after that lawsuit was settled and Vibram then began selling a training program with its shoes because, because they recognized that actually you've got to help people into this thing. There's got to be transition. Mm. But none of that nuance was there in the beginning. So that yeah, was the first yeah, problem. Yeah. So when Nick, and, when Nick and I started the research, that was our focus. Was we wanted to try and understand who, who did it and who didn't. So the very first thing we did was we had like 51 shod runners. Nice big sample, bigger than anything before. Mm. And we're going to make these shod runners take their shoes off and check what happens. And sure enough, 16 of them shift to forefoot. That's 30, give or take, 30%. Mm-hmm. The other 70% stay on the heel. And so the whole premise, remember Lieberman was saying, barefoot, lower impact, lower loading rates because you're going to land on the front of the foot. Well, no, two-thirds of them went the other did you way. Give them a chance, did you give them a chance no, to so this was No, this was our acute. So we wanted to do this in stages. We want to see acute response, eight Keep weeks, meaning, meaning immediate, immediate response. response right, like, because yeah. I wanted to, what I was interested in trying to figure out is what predicted it. Mm. Was there something they did that we could then start training mm. in that group to, to, to get them to get more of that 70% to make that shift. So we, we did an acute response, then we did a training block of eight weeks, and then we did it again, and then we did a, a fatiguing study because no one had ever considered or thought about at the end of a 21K or 10K even, that's when you're at risk. What do you yes. look like then? Right. Yeah. So that was the problem. Mm. So, so yeah, so, so we, we showed the same proportion as Lieberman, like two-thirds don't make the initial adjustment. They're blocked from doing it. It's a skill they've lost the ability to do. Maybe because of wearing shoes, you could argue that. Yeah. I would argue that if you're selling this as a solution to a person's injury problems, you've at least got a responsibility to sell it with some instructions. Yeah, <laughs> you can't. You can't yeah. say, "Well, do this and it'll work." But actually, there's about five other things you should have done. Which is the advice now for people who want to build. Well, yeah, and so at least we've learned now. And but then I would argue, and there's a paper came out actually in Medicine and Science and Sports and Exercise where they looked at a 20-week adaptation and they found that 71% of runners could make the switch to barefoot. Now, in this particular study, they took 76 runners, which is a nice sample, nice, nice study, and they gradually, over the course of 20 weeks, transitioned them to barefoot, first in their normal shoes, then in a minimalist shoe, then eventually barefoot. Five months later, three-quarters of them did it. Right. I don't know that that's a viable product, or concept to sell that says five months worth of investment with reduced training and so on to someone who's already a runner. But a beginner, long-term, maybe. Are, are, do they ever correlate that with, with injuries? In other words, well, not not the study. That person they've adapted to this new way of running. Do they then have less injuries as a result? Not the study, but right. since since the born to run craze and so on, there are three systematic reviews, and I'll put every one of these three links in the show notes. Those three systematic reviews have looked at risk of injury and biomechanical changes in barefoot versus shod, in minimalist versus cushioned, in forefoot versus heel, no difference in injury risk between those groups. So the whole premise of reduce the injury risk by going this way isn't borne out by any evidence. And that's what the skeptic article's main claim is. He basically Mm -hmm. writes that we've had a decade now and still nobody's found this benefit. 
So for instance, it was it was sold on the premise that being barefoot would strengthen the tendons and the muscles in the foot. There's one study where they found that actually people who wear shoes have got stiffer, stronger tendons than people who are barefoot. But it's a cross-sectional study. It's not one that looked at them mm. before and after and progressed them. So a little bit weak, maybe. Mm. Other studies have found that systematic reviews, as I mentioned, barefoot shoes reduce impact forces. Good news in some people, but no association and no relationship between that and injury risk. So you can lower it, but you still have the same risk of injuries. Maybe that's not the thing causing the injuries after all. Or it's a different kind of injury. We get onto that. Yeah. Another systematic review, half of which had injury prevention exercises and gait retraining. So in other words, they learned that you can't just do it and off you go. Um, runners who changed to minimalist footwear had no difference in injury rates compared to those who ran in conventional sneakers. In fact, the minimalist shoes are slightly higher, not significantly, <laughs> stats-wise. A third systematic review with 8,400 participants found in terms of injury rates, biomechanics, health-related outcomes, and motor performance, there is limited and very limited inference, evidence of any differences between habitually barefoot versus habitually shod running. So there's no 10 years worth, and a lot of people have looked. It's not like people didn't look for it. No one's found it yet. Yeah. And so that suggests to me it's quite a weak hypothesis. And part it's, of it's it is... It's kind of disappointing in a way because I kind of felt that... I, I do buy into this slightly minimalist theory, not necessarily... I will go and buy myself a pair of Vibram Five Fingers, but I do personally enjoy a more a, a slightly. I'm, I'm 100 kilos, mm. but I prefer running in a shoe that is very minimalist because I love the way it feels. And I always mm. like to refer to this term of neuromuscular feedback when your feet can feel the earth that it's running on. It, it um, my mind says I'm ad- I'm adapting as I'm running because I feel more. Therefore, the shoes that they that they've got now, which these big heel counters and these big uh, um, cushioning shoes, you don't feel mm. the ground as much as you feel it. And I'm not sure that your body can feel what it needs to adapt to. It's the only way I can well, describe it. It's hard to describe it. but Yeah, so that's the theory. But again, there's no evidence, there's no evidence that supports yeah. that that feeling the ground is protective against injury. It feels good. Like I said, I really loved running barefoot. And I got to the top of mm. Kelly and I kept going. And I think by about April that year, I got a stress fracture in my metatarsals because yeah. I loaded the feet without cushioning. And see, that's the problem is you... So cushioning you, you does... Can't. Is there evidence to suggest that cushioning issues does reduce injuries? Yeah, not, not injuries, but certainly the forces are lower. So so the second study we did with Nick, um, so that was the first one, acute, half, because three quarters you, of the people... The forces might be lower because but where are you measuring? <laughs> On the leg? Yeah, you're measuring the ground reaction force through the leg, the ground right. between the yeah. ground and the and the body. And that's what you're measuring. So there. you are so with but, with pad, with cushioned shoes, you are getting less impact on the leg, therefore less impact so, on the bone. Yeah. So the second study we did, and in fact, even in the first study, and I, I could give you the exact stats here, the exact numbers. Um, this was the one with 51, and what we found was that on average, these shod runners had much higher loading rates when barefoot. Mm. But as I say. 30-odd percent of them got better barefoot, lower loading rates, and 70-odd percent got much worse. But what was interesting is that the variation between people when barefoot is enormous. Mm. I mean, I'll read to you here the the results. Like the group mean loading rate was greater. So, in fact, it's it's, it's probably 70% higher barefoot than in Mm. shoes in in these habitually shod runners. 
But the, the barefoot range in ground reaction forces is from 12 body weights per second to 622. <laughs> so, I mean, that's yeah. orders of magnitude different almost. Well, it is. It's 10 yeah. more, 50 odd fold difference. So, some people seem to do it quote unquote well, mm. other people not so well. Now, remember that this is well as framed by loading rate arguments. Mm. And I remember when we try to get these papers published. We ran into a lot of resistance in the biomechanics community because they said, why are you being so reductionist and looking at loading rate? Why is that your thing? It was like, well, that's the thing because that's, that's the, in effect, the rules of the game that had been set up by Lieberman and McDougall. Mm. Because they were telling the world that loading rate was the means by which barefoot running would make you better. Right? Yes, but there was also the promise of reduced injury risk. Yeah, but the, that was via loading rate. That's if you assume, and obviously it makes sense, that loading rate will result in Correct. But the, but the point but is does that… It, does it that, always correlate? No, and that was the point. But that was their model, right? They, they came up with a model that said lo- loading rate will be lower when barefoot because of these changes, and therefore injuries will go down. That was… I'm oversimplifying a little bit, but that was mm. their model. So when Nick and I came to test it, we wanted to test that. And then we discovered there was a whole world of biomechanics that rejected even that concept mm. by saying to us… Why are you obsessive about loading rate? Don't be a reductionist. And we're like, we're not. We're trying to assess the real world thing. I learned in that whole process, biomechanists are not very often plugged into the real world. Because they were like, test this. And we said, but no one's arguing that. They're arguing loading rate. So let's test loading rate. Mm. And so we focused on loading rate and got a lot of criticism as a result. But for me, it was appropriate because that was... That's kind of like, that was your argument, and now I'm going to evaluate you. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. But to the consumer, the consumer is buying into the barefoot craze because they are being promised that they will run better and less injuries. Yeah, but the mechanism was loading rate. Yes. Now, the biomechanists are saying, loading rate's one element, there are five others. There's, that's true. There's muscle tuning. There's pre-activation of the muscle. Right. There's peak ground reaction force, not the rate. The, what's the what's the actual value? Not how quickly it was there. So there was a lot of stuff, and well, you can't fair. cover is that, it all. Is that not fair? Yeah, yeah, it's very fair. Yeah. It's very yeah. fair, and that's the problem with the barefoot theory. Mm. It was a reductionist, mm. but even in its reductionism, it was flawed because mm. the moment we started to test it, we found, hang on, the loading rate's not lower when you're barefoot. It goes up for most people initially, mm. and in fact, when you look at shoes. Wearing shoes and heel striking produces the same ground reaction forces and loading rates as being barefoot and heel striking. Yes. So the shoe is protective. Yes. In a way that McDougall and Lieberman were never ever going to acknowledge. It's protective, but is your body, but you're still getting some impact via a shoe, and is your body then adapting because it is it not being given a different feedback from what it is from the impact? In other words. Probably not explaining this correctly, but when you're running in a barefoot scenario, your body is protecting itself. When you're running in cushioned shoes, is it as protective as it should be? Why? But that, and this was this was an <laughs> argument a lot of the time. And I remember I used to say to people, even at that conference, says, "Why is your model that when you take the shoes off, you get clever? Your body suddenly gets clever and starts to say, now I must change to forefoot and blah blah blah.' But when you put the shoes on, you get dumb because it can't maybe the feel body, the earth. Maybe the body knows better." irrespective of the footwear condition and it says now I've got a nice cushion under my foot I can land on the heel because landing on the heel does have certain other implications it requires less calf muscle and Achilles tendon activation it unloads the back posterior muscles Mm -hmm. and maybe that's maybe there's a balance here there's a trade-off that the body's trying to find an answer to you know but very few elite runners are heel strikers. Many, all of them are forefoot strikers. No, that's often because you don't see many elite. There are some, but they're well, not many elite runners who are. Most heel elite strikers. runners are midfoot and heel foot. 
heel strikers. There was a study done oh, in a... I thought they were mostly on their forefoot mid before. No, they're on the forefoot when they're running 1500s because they're running 55 seconds a lap. Mm. And it's very hard to run that speed without being on the front of your foot. But when you're running three minutes a K, and there was a study done in a half marathon in Japan where mm. they looked at like 60 minute 21K guys. And by the 16K mark, most of them are on the heel or the middle. Wow. Not the, not the front. So, so that's, that, that was also I, something I, that was never, sold. I never thought that was true. See, there's so much more nuance in this mm. thing. So then what Nick and I did was we said, right, of those 51, we're going to take a bunch that are wanting to do a transition period. And we said eight weeks. Now, recently a study did 20 weeks. Maybe we were too aggressive. But we allowed them to, to transition. We got minimalist shoes mm. because we wanted to see if if over eight weeks people would change their biomechanics sufficiently so that they'd look different to initially, yeah. right? That's a it's critical metric, that. Yeah. And so what we found in that study was that of the 26, 13 were non-responders. They looked exactly the same before and after 18 weeks, mm. uh, eight weeks. They're, 13 out of 26. 13 out of 26, 50%. Ah, so 50%, yeah. So... They landed at the same place, their ankle angles, their knee angles, their loading rates, their ground forces, everything was the same. So no, the, the eight weeks of minimalist training didn't change the way they ran barefoot. Sure, I'm surprised. Th- seven of them were positive responders. And after eight weeks of minimalist training, when you made them run barefoot, they now landed on the front of the foot. They had lower body uh, loading rates. They had more flexed knees. They looked like they'd learned something. They'd acquired a skill reduced their loading rate mm. and six of them were negative responders that somehow went the other way they were more likely to land on the heel after eight weeks of minimalist running so that was a proper fly in the ointment because now you say well not even like regular exposure and we didn't want to give them instructions because we figured a real world scenario is like a guy's going to go and run barefoot he's not going to get a coach every day telling so, him do this do that so we wanted to see in the absence of instruction will you acquire it naturally and the answer is no three quarters of them didn't Half of them stayed the same, half of them got way better, and one quarter got worse, which was amazing. So that was nuts. So now we've got this thing where we said, okay, we've got responders, non-responders, and negative responders, worseners, as it were. Yeah. So the picture's by no means Does that surprise you? I mean, I'm surprised that those those stats results came out like that. I was surprised that some people got worse. I figured at at worst you'd stay the same. But these these guys were landing like after training. And again, I'll I'll post the links to the study. I'm sure there are some issues. We took 26 habitually shod runners and we discovered that there were these very profound differences. And the biggest predictor of whether your loading rate got better or worse or the same was did you manage to learn how to land at the ankle? Right. Like, did you control that ankle angle? And so mm. some people might just not have the sensory capabilities mm. or the muscle strength. The moment you start landing on the front of your foot, the eccentric load for your ankle, calf, Achilles is enormous. Mm-hmm. And some people may not have that ability. Mm. So you might need to strengthen them for four to six weeks before you even try it because you're asking them to do something they're not structurally capable of doing. You know what I mean? Like. Mm. So there's all these things that were coming out from this. And there's so many variables because a lot will depend on somebody's upbringing. Exactly. Whether they wore shoes when they were young for long periods of time, what climate they grew up in, whether they wore shoes more in a winter climate, et cetera, et cetera. So, I mean, I guess it's to do a a study that will give you an absolute answer to all of this is almost impossible because of the variability. Absolutely. And And then the problem is that because there's so much individual variability, you can't even say, here's 10 weeks, do this. Because mm. I was very conservative in how I introduced it. I was walking 
for half an hour barefoot before I started to do any running at all. And then what I would do is I'd run and 400 meters from home, I'd whip my shoes off and run the last 400 meters because it was a smooth road and I knew I could. Mm. And then 600, then 800. So I was pretty conservative. Mm. And four or five months later, I got stress fractures in the metatarsals. I was in a boot for six weeks after that, eight weeks. It was a, it was a mess up. Because I, don't, I think people that, don't understand. People will say that's an overtraining issue. Yeah, but I mean, I, I, was, I was mega conservative. Yeah, like, I wasn't yeah. aggressive at all. It's true, yes. So and and I was fit at the start. So maybe, and here's the other thing is I think, I think minimalist shoes allowed people to do more than they should have done because you no longer had skin limitations. I remember when I went, I was like, I'm going straight in barefoot. And then the problem was 400 meters on the tarmac, my feet were burning. Oh, yeah, jeez. Like, like I was, no, my skin is so weak and soft, you know. Mm. Three weeks later, 400 meters, no problem. But the problem is then, I think the, the weakest link in that chain is now my sensation of, of my feet. I'm burning. I have to stop. So then I can't load my skeleton and my ligaments and my tendons and joints mm. because my feet are limiting me. Mm. Whereas I think if you put Vibram or minimalist shoes on, you don't get that feedback. Now you can run 6Ks on day one because mm. you're a foot runner. Mm. Next thing, you've got all sorts of tendon, bone, stress, injuries, mm. and so on. So, so the point, I guess, is that when you make the, sh- the, when you make the shift from be- shod to barefoot running, there's no guarantee you're going to initially adapt. Even over time, there's no guarantee that you're going to adapt. But if you did adapt, you'd get lower vertical loading rates. That's, whether or not that's beneficial is questionable. Mm. Some would say yes. Other, others would argue that that model is simplified and not true. So they'll, yeah. they'll reject yeah, yeah. that it works. And then the other thing is with fatigue, what we then did was we had 22 runners come in and we made them go shod barefoot in the, in the lab, then do 10Ks maximally, and then come do it again. And what we found is that the less well-trained you were, the worse off you looked afterwards in barefoot condition, not shod. So your loading rate, again, we were on our loading rate paradigm because that's kind of the rules of the game. Mm. So we found that with fatigue, loading rates were higher when barefoot if you weren't well-trained. So that, that showed you're vulnerable to this risk factor mm. unless you were very cautious and didn't fatigue yourself. And where shoes took away that risk factor. Mm. With fatigue, before and after fatigue, these runners looked the same. Before and after barefoot, they looked far worse afterwards. <laughs> and oh. so, so it was all these like cautionary findings yeah. that would make one say actually – and that's why, again, coming back to that conference, that, that launch thing, there are undoubtedly people who would – make the shift to barefoot running with less risk of injury mm. and they'd enjoy it and they absolutely should continue. Yeah, and those, but, are, the, those are the positive responders. Yeah, positive yeah, responders. And there are those people for sure. Yeah, exactly. So that, that's why this niche will not go away because there are people for whom yeah. barefoot running is undoubtedly better. Oh, yeah. But the and problem is… lots of them are absolutely and still running five years later, they are… Yeah, if I run zealots. now, if mm. I run now, okay, I don't do that often. But if I'm not in a racing flat or a lightweight training shoe, mm. I feel stuck to the ground. Yeah. And I take the shoes off and I run barefoot and I feel light and bouncy and elastic. I feel like I'm engaging particularly glutes, hamstrings, calves. I remember the first time I ran anything barefoot was like, I mean, like I say, 800 meters. And I was stiff for three days afterwards. And at that stage, I was running 60, 70K a week. Yeah. So it's not like I was unaccustomed to to, it. And it just goes to show I was stiff in the glutes, hamstrings, and calves. Mm. Running as I was, my 60, 70K is my eccentric activation of that muscle group those muscle groups must have been next to zero because mm. suddenly barefoot I got sore <laughs> so there's clearly yeah. something that it changes neuromuscularly but what you're doing is you're moving load around you can never get rid of it mm. 
So the question is, where do I want to put it? Mm. And a heel striker might be putting that load more anteriorly. So shin, knee, ITB, hip maybe. Mm. A forefoot striker might be putting that load on the posterior chain, the calf and the Achilles in particular. Mm. Remember in <coughs> about 2005-06, a guy came out to the Africa called Nicholas Romanov <laughs> and he was promoting something called pose running. That's Heard right. That? I remember pose running. He ran many stories on it. And I was one of the participants in that initial trial. Yes. And he came out here for four weeks. It was weeks all about running on the forefoot, wasn't it? Bas- basically, it was like, <coughs> excuse me, it was basically pull your landing point backwards so that mm. you don't reach in front of you, but you land under your center of mass. Right. Shorter, choppier strides, and you will, as a consequence, land on the front of the foot. And then you pull your leg off the ground mm. rather than apply your foot onto the ground. And it was really interesting. I mean, mm. we did this. He had, I don't know, 20 runners start out, <coughs> test them before and after. And what we found was, well, what he found, I was a subject, not a researcher, mm. was that the load on the knee is lower, but mm. the load on the ankle goes up. Mm. So effectively, you've moved at knee to ankle. Mm. So maybe the answer is, if you have chronic knee conditions, mm. then forefoot striking and barefoot running potentially might be part of the treatment for your injuries. But if you're prone to calf and Achilles and foot injuries, then actually you might be putting more onto those parts mm. by running that way. Mm. And the same will be true for barefoot running. Is I reckon there are people for whom it will be good and there are people for whom it will be very dangerous. But the science is not precise enough in the same mm. way that it's not precise enough to say biomechanically that must be a doper. <laughs> yeah. To bring it back to Owen's patron question, it's not, I couldn't tell you. Mm. All I know is that some people don't make that shift at the ankle that mm. allows them to land on the forefoot. And mm. they look way worse barefoot than in shoes. So for yeah. them, they must stay in shoes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, is it is it a jump to suggest then that, and I'm a, I shouldn't be saying this because I'm my involvement in Runner's World here in South Africa, but there's a certain element of cynicism that I have around shoe technology where I kind of think, well, oh, I yeah. can't sell a shoe without technology in it. Mm. Therefore, the more technology you can show, the better chance you have of charging right. the amount that you want for a specialist shoe. Yeah. Can we push it to say that the technology does show evidence of being of value? No, it doesn't. And I mean, you asked earlier, and I don't think I answered you, about about a study where people who wear expensive shoes are more likely to be yes. injured. That's true. There's a study out I of it. I thought that was Lieberman, actually, did that study. Mm, I, I don't think, that think it was. I think it was before. I'll but it was, it, it, was used, it was used as part of the rationale. You know, right. look, the, all the shoe tech in the world hasn't managed to bring injury rates down. Therefore, mm. shoes don't work. There's a few problems with that. One is the people who wear expensive shoes might just be more injury prone. In the first instance. That's why they buy the shoes. Yeah. Why they buy the shoe, no, because they've true. had previous injuries, and a previous <clears throat> injury is the best predictor of a future injury. It might be that wealthier people are less active in their normal lives. They mm. buy the expensive shoe. They're weak because they – and there's no doubt, by the way, that how we sit at desks and sound weakens us for, like, daily activity mm. in life, and mm. that's part of why we're so unathletic and more injury-prone, mm. right? Mm. Yeah. And then also, in the 1970s, the only people running were the Andy Burford types, the Bill Rogers, the good marathon runners, biomechanically – elite yeah, <laughs> selected the out. The jogging craze hadn't started then. Exactly. Right. And so with yeah. the, when the jogging craze started, all these people who have far more risk factors, body mass, weakness, inflexibilities, etc., suddenly start running. No shoe was going to save you from injury when you had five other things that were causing it, right? Yeah. Yeah. So there were lots of confounders there. Like there was another one in, in Haiti showed that people who were barefoot were less likely to go to the doctor for mm-hmm. treatments. Well, 
maybe the fact that you can go to the doctor is related to your wealth, which is the thing that allowed you to buy shoes. So it's not shoes that caused the injury. It's the, it's the so, fact that you can. Yeah. So anyway, point is, confounders galore. Mm. But there is, but 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 the truth is, there is no evidence that all the tech in the world in shoes is protective against injury. No one has shown that, and that's why. Remember in the nineteen nineties, antipronation devices, roll bars, yeah, and, and they don't exist. Now. They don't exist because we, I remember a few when I first joined Runners World, we had four sections in the shoe bars guide every year: yes. motion control, yeah. stability, and neutral. Yeah. Now you get some stability, but almost all shoes are just neutral right. now. You don't even have motion control anymore. The Brooks Beasts. Of this world, which was a big seller back then, mm. I don't think I might still a few. They sell a few in the US now, but you don't see that those kind of shoes in South Africa and no. around the world anymore. No, exactly. So, the, so the shoes so, have been sold differently. Yeah. So, in a sense, the shoe market, the commercial world, just reacted to the fact that there's no evidence at all mm. that those things worked, and they said, "Well, then don't bother with them." You know. Mm. But you're right; they have to sell something. So now you look at them. Now they're selling okay carbon fiber plates mm. for performance. On that note, there's a study that came out recently showing that there's an increased risk of injury when you run in carbon fiber plated shoes. Yeah. Because again, you're changing, that carbon fiber plate is changing the loading dynamics, the pattern, the timing, and the magnitude potentially of where load goes mm. in the running stride. Mm. And so sure enough, carbon fiber shoe, you're going to get more posterior injuries because you're going to land on a stiffer stiffer landing platform, yeah. right? So that's, that's true. To, so in a sense, barefoot running is like anything else. It's just a new stress being introduced. Mm. The problem eventually that Nick and I, I think, recognized is that there's no guarantee that runners can learn the skill necessary to access the benefit of barefoot running. Mm. And so therefore, and given now what I've seen in these systematic reviews, there's no reduction in injuries. Maybe this is why a lot of people try and get worse. <laughs> there's no reason that a healthy runner who's not injured, should make the switch. It's no, there's no benefit and only possible downside. Mm. My, my advice on that, though, by the way, is, is like run. If you, if you do regular runs, track sessions or something like that, do your warm down after your track session, that 800 meters barefoot, mm. just for the sensation of it because it's nice. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with... Changes the stresses on your body. Yeah, move the stresses around a little bit, work on... Because it's a strengthening exercise in effect. The fact that it causes failure and injury is an indication that it's a strengthening exercise. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, yeah. yeah. That's a nice bit of advice, actually, that. That's a good way of thinking about it because I do think there is some value in it and whether you're full-time barefoot running or just using it as a strength training alternative, it's a good one. And I remember at the time, Nick and I did a couple of presentations on this and we said, there's no reason at all that everyone sorry we said everyone at some point should run barefoot in their mm. training week there's no reason at all that nobody can do it mm. so do it but just don't buy into this idea that this is now the solution you know it's not the elixir of yeah exactly you know, exactly running yeah yeah anyway interesting stuff so let us know if you've had an experience with the barefoot running whether you've done tried it and it's worked or tried it and it's not worked let us know we're always interested to hear people's experiences and we'll share those on our platform, but don't forget we're on oh. Twitter, Sports iPod. One, one last thing on that. I remember at that conference, there was a guy, the Barefoot Professor, and Lieberman's also now called that. So everyone mm. knows who doesn't wear shoes as a Barefoot Professor. Mm. I suppose I was back then too, but anyway. Uh, you went to Professor back then. No, just a doctor. No, just an arbor. <laughs> and uh, this guy said, he rejects anything unnatural. He's into paleo living, mm. which means what he eats, the way he runs. He says, if our ancestors ran barefoot, He's running barefoot. That was his rationale mm. for this. I said, why do you wear glasses? It's 
you, your eyesight's poor, right? But that's natural, right? So being naturally short-sighted. So like, what are you correcting that for? And why, why is correcting that element different to correcting something some people might have biomechanically? Is there not a little bit of hypocrisy and double standard in your approach here? <laughs> and that's the thing about these guys. It's like, I just think they become too ideological and that, and as a consequence, they lose any ability to understand nuance and the fact that just because it works for me doesn't mean everyone. Mm. And then they have these logical flaws. Like It's a nice sell, though. That's what I like about it. Like, as I said right at the start of this podcast, the, the Liebermans of this world and, and, and the Born to Run story, It's it, if you love running, you can buy into some of that. Yeah, I know. The, 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 the purity of it, the history of it, the biomechanics of it, the fact that we were once cave in running around in bare feet. It's all very romantic. And I do think... I don't remember Born to Run well enough. I read it like a decade ago, like you probably, right? Yeah. And I mean, I'll see if I read this new one. This is the second iteration, Born Again. What's it called? Yeah, Born Again. It's just Born Again 2. Yeah. Born to Run 2. Born to Run, sorry. Not Born okay. Again. Sorry, no, that's another not, thing altogether. It's not speaking of religion and ideology. <laughs> um, so I'll, I'll probably read it also. Yeah. And there, there were elements in the first book that... Yeah, yeah Born to Run 2. Yeah. There were elements in the first book... I thought maybe he'd call the second one born again, you know? Yes. Yeah. It makes sense, actually. <laughs> <laughs> but um, there were elements of the first one that I think were even, like, transcended the barefoot running thing. But that's obviously the main part of that book. Mm. You know, he made a big point of it. Mm. But in the second one, based on the interview that you did with him, it's clear he's more about the mindset. Mm. And the well, it wasn't me that the interview, but yes. We were interview running. Yeah, we were running, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. And there are elements of it. I, I, I don't run much anymore now, but... There wasn't there wasn't a simplicity about running and a naturalness yes. to it that I think That's was attractive. made it the most appealing sport. The, the idea of disappearing into a forest in in Eugene or the park in in New York and just mm. vanishing mm. and running. Just yeah. to, you know, in your sandals. Well <laughs> with your long hair flowing behind you and your yeah, tofu sandwich lined up at the end. <laughs> I wasn't quite ready to go that far. But I can see why people have your that appeal. Shirt. Like and just feel feel how you instead of being mechanistic about it that's the one thing cycling is is quite structurally rigid right Mm. you don't run cycle to feel you should maybe but running you can just it isn't it is the most natural movement yes Lieberman wrote a paper talking about born to run and how running was instrumental in our evolution Mm. because it allowed us to hunt and we we evolved specifically to be distance runners and that's a great story and it's encouraging for everyone to say listen you can run you might not be a 202 marathoner or 220 marathoner for women. You are designed to run, absolutely. But you are. So there's elements of the book that were valuable, but it was it definitely overplayed its hand on the barefoot running benefits. Mm. And you know, we're more than a decade later, and still nobody's looked found what was promised in that book, and that's not for a lack of trying. And that yeah. means something. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Fascinating. Anyway, don't forget you can uh, f- to follow us, as I said, on Sports Side Pod on Twitter, but also on our Patreon channel. If you go to Patreon, look for Science of Sport Podcast, you can become a supporter of ours and get to Ross's uh, often weekly newsletters, although I know you're going away. Just give us a brief idea where you're going in the next couple of weeks. Yeah, I fly to London. We've got a big block of That's meetings today. next yeah. week. Mm-hmm. That's like all the World Rugby runs and makes all the game decisions with these various committees. There's a high-performance men's committee full of coaches and players. There's a women's one. There's a community one. There's a regional committee. And then the week after that is Dublin for the Exco and the board and council and all that sort of stuff. So mm-hmm. a chance to present to them the latest research findings, welfare issues, and then they make decisions based on that. And then Dublin? 
that's the expo and the board meeting okay, the right, week right, after. Right. So I've got a week in London and then a couple of days in Dublin. Cool. So well, enjoy the trip and travel safe. Yeah, I will. Yeah, I'll, to I'll use it. <clears throat> I spent a bit of time this morning answering all your messages on Patreon. Thanks very much. I owe Renato a, me- a reply. I got your message because he's our VVIP. Okay. And a couple others, actually. I'll get around to them, but keep them coming. Well, you've got the plane trip tonight, so you can oh, work on it. <laughs> yep. Thanks so much, Ross. Uh, safe travels and goodbye for now. Follow the Science of Sport podcast at SportsSciPod and on Instagram at Science of Sport Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Science of Sport podcast. Follow us on Twitter at SportsSciPod and on Instagram at Science of Sport Podcast. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. <laughs> 